Welcome to the Man on Second podcast, part of the Coach and Kernan podcast network. I'm Joe Forsari, your host. Uh, this is episode number 77 for the network and number nine for me doing the Man on Second uh, podcast as I joined a couple of months ago. Um, and as our listeners know, our mission here at the network is to raise the baseball IQ of our listeners. We intend to do that today. And I got a guest that's going to just hit a home run. I just know it. Um, before I introduce him, I just want to kind of reiterate for people like I've been in the game for 20 years as a reporter and um, many of those, well, all of them as a baseball writer covering the, the, the Marlins, first Florida and then the Miami Marlins. And all baseball people will tell you the appeal of the sport, why we love it so much in part is the relationships you build. And my guest today is one of my true best friends in this sport, one of my favorite people in the sport. He also happens to be one of the best evaluators this sport has seen in at least three decades. He's a great person, great baseball person, very well respected in the industry. Dan Jennings, currently a special assistant with the Washington Nationals, previously was a with the Marlins as an executive, was a GM, even managed for uh, as a, on an interim basis. Dan Jennings also goes back. He he worked in the Seattle and Tampa Bay. DJ, welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, and before, he also, DJ, as everyone knows, they should know, I'm a University of Alabama alum. DJ is from Alabama, gigantic Crimson Tide fan. So roll, roll Tide, my friend. Roll Tide, Joe. Thank you for having me, you and David. And I appreciate uh, I appreciate the great introduction. And it's just, uh, it's an honor to be part of, of uh, baseball talks that uh, – really keep the characters in the game at the forefront with some great stories and, and wonderful memories of, uh, of days gone by. Yeah. And, and you know what, and that's one of the things, the timing of having, having you on, you'd be great at any time, but kind of this week and, and this time uh, is significant because those following the world series will know Dusty Baker, the Astros manager at age 73 is currently he is now the officially the oldest manager to manage in the World Series. Should the Astros win it all, he will be obviously the oldest manager to win the World Series. And and Dan Jennings and I happened to be back in 2003 with the Marlins when Jack McKeon, at age 72, was brought in and won the World Series for the then Florida Marlins, who upset the New York Yankees in six games. So, it you know, the, those savvy veterans are managers and dj of course uh jack mckean is going to turn 92 on november 23rd and he's he's still a teammate of yours at washington and and you know one of the things we're going to raise dj is you know dusty baker has built a hall of fame worthy career he's you know great player but the managing and his time in the game and i kind of want to illuminate this we've discussed it we think jack mckean is deserving of hall of fame recognition as well don't we Absolutely, we do. I, I've been very fortunate to work with both guys, um, you know, certainly with Jack and what he was able to do for that organization and for us in 2003 was nothing short of spectacular. The way he come in and essentially told everyone in that clubhouse that if you want to win, I can show you how to win. You're good enough to win. Now, if you want to, I can show you how. And he did that very thing. He made the players believe in themselves and the rest is history. And having worked with Dusty uh, while I was in Washington 
he come over. This might be the coolest dude in the game that I've ever been around. He knows everybody. He's respectful, treats people great. He's truly a throwback. He he brings out some of the best qualities of days gone by, and he utilizes his gut intuition as well as some of the other nuances in the game. And uh, he's a Hall of Famer in my mind already. He's got over 2,000 wins. It's It appears to be the one thing, the World Series, that has eluded him. And uh, you can't help but pull uh, for Dusty to have that uh, to have that final icing on the cake because he's certainly deserving. Yeah, no, no question. And and you know it's funny, DJ. Before the the series started, I called Jack. I try to check in with him every couple of months, and I usually call him for his birthday anyway. But you know, I did kind of call him up and and kind of talk to him about Dusty. And, you know, in typical Jack fashion, you know, he's he's pulling for the old guy. You know, he's and although he's his his son or excuse me, his grandson works with the Phillies. So his rooting interest is with the Phillies. But he certainly has a lot of respect for Dusty. And if Dusty were to to win this and Jack said the same thing, this is the feather in Dusty's cap. Should he, you know, take the World Series, you know, crown and 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 let's let's just talk about that, you know, in terms of the the managers and, and Jack, you know, we'll talk about Jack specifically right here because, you know, Jack has seven decades in this sport and I don't want to make it just seem like a participation thing with Jack McKeon. I mean, he has had to win and he's won everywhere he's been either as a GM or a manager. He's a two-time National League Manager of the Year in 1999 with the Reds and then in 03 with the Marlins. And, you know, he took he built he was the architect of the '84 San Diego Padres that went to the World Series. He ended up losing to the to the uh, uh, Detroit Tigers in four games, but he built that. And what to me should be what the people that that, that make these decisions should pay attention to. Jack has had to do it with not you know with the the lower re, uh, resource teams, lower revenue type teams, not the big market team. No doubt. I, you know, Joe, you bring up so many good points about Jack and his great qualities, and I, uh, it's beyond my fathoming thought of how this guy is not a Hall of Famer, certainly considered for it. Uh, I think he's the only manager in the history of the game to win over a thousand games in the minor leagues and over a thousand games in the major leagues. Uh, he's two-time manager of the year. He's been a World Series winner, uh, and he's he earned the reputation as Trader Jack for the moves that he made as he sat in the general manager's chair. And I think if you just step back and look at his total body of work and all the different hats that he's worn, um, he is most definitely deserving of a Hall of Fame, and I hope that the Veterans Committee, certainly having Jim now in the hall, uh, could help this along. But I would love to see Jack get the accolades that he so deserves. Yeah, I'm in agreement. And we all know, you know, Jack McKeon managed, for our listeners, Jim Cott in, what, Missoula, Montana. Jack will tell <laughs> it when he was like, what, 17 years old? 17. 17. And Jack was telling people then, this guy is ready for the big leagues. Yeah. And he was and he was sticking his neck out 
for for Jim Codd back in in well in the day. Uh, and and DJ, you're right. He is the only manager to win over thousand over thousand minor league games, and in 16 years uh, seasons uh, managing in the big leagues. 1,051 in 990. It's a 515 winning percentage, but the teams he managed, Kansas City, Oakland, San Diego, Cincinnati, and Florida, and then in briefly in 11, Miami. Uh, no, actually, Marlins hadn't officially changed their name, so it, they officially were the, the Florida Marlins when Jack managed in the organization. He obviously, he has stayed active in his 70s up until his 90s as a special special advisor. He was an advisor uh, with you in, in 19 when the Nationals won the World Series. So Jack now is part of two World Series teams. And kind of say what, you know, give our audience a clue what Jack is still providing, you know, obviously in a, in a consulting role, basically. So the beautiful part, I, I've had the great fortune to be part of both of those World Series with Jack. And I can think back, especially in 2003, to so many uh, conference calls that we had uh, when we were faced with an injury or we needed a, a trade or a player. And he, he had that innate ability to keep his eye on the prize, and that is to, be, uh, to win it all. And with, with us here now in Washington, Rizzo utilizes that experience and he reaches out to Jack to get his insight on things that, you know, in seven decades, there's probably a good chance that he's seen it before or, you know, at least been with someone who's seen it or uh, has recommendations on how you can make things better. And maybe the most fascinating part of all of this at 92 years old his mind is tremendous. His recall, his memory. Now, he may not remember your name, but he can tell you exactly <laughs> the count and who was on base in a, in a game in 1973. And it just amazes me, uh, his total recall and uh, his memory. DJ, were you there part of when, when Jack got hired? Because he obviously replaced Jeff Torborg, and he had you know, like dinner in like some in South Beach with Jeffrey Loria, then the owner of the Marlins. Were you there that night? Yes, I was. Uh, I was the VP of Player Personnel, um, Bill Beck, who was our director of team travel at the time. Uh, was very close with Jack. They had worked together in numerous places. And he talked about, you know, Jack being the guy who could come in. He had a knack for turning a team around. And uh, Jeffrey was enthralled with it, liked what he heard. And, uh, you know, Jack, in Jack's classic way, said, yeah, I've been watching you guys on TV. I think I could handle this. I'd, I could come in and give you some insight. And these guys are good enough to win. And that basically is how it unfolded. He walked in the door and – you know, there was some rumblings of, hey, you're 72, 73 years old. And I remember him saying, ah, age is just a number. It don't mean anything. You guys want to win, I'll show you how to win. And he uh, he made a couple of moves, uh, one of them with one of our star player, if not the best player, and gained the respect. And all of a sudden, man, we took off and – for the remainder of that season, after about May the 25th, I think it was, 
we had the best record in baseball and ended up winning the uh, ended up winning the World Series. Yeah, just a refresher. Uh, I know Yankee fans don't like hearing this, but it's I do I do believe that the 03 Marlins helped save the franchise down here in the, in their own way, DJ, because I think it really went a long way to get in there the new ballpark. But yeah, 2003 in May, the Marlins were 16 and 22 and they let Jeff Torborg go. They bring in Jack McKeon. They go 75 and 49 the rest of the way, which I believe DJ was the best record from that date forward of any team in the big leagues. Absolutely. So they go in there. Uh, they, you know, back then there was just the one wild card, you know, take the wild card and then, and then he makes the history. And this is something I, I think that I, I don't know if I'm hundred percent right on this, but I think it's the greatest disparity. The Marlins beating the Yankees in the world series, the greatest payroll disparity in the history of baseball and maybe the history in, in the major team sports here in the U.S., the Yankees' payroll that year, um, according to like uh, the COTS or whatever payroll things, hundred almost $153 million, the, the total payroll back in 2003. The Marlins were 40, you know, touching on $49 million. So we're talking about over $104 million difference. No doubt about and, it. And that, you know, so clearly this is an upset of, you know, tremendous proportions. And, and then, you know, that Marlins team beat hundred win Yankee team and a hundred win uh, San Francisco giant team. And then had to, you know, face the red hot Cubs, of course, in the, the famous NLCS led by Dusty Baker, led by Dusty Baker, the Steve Bartman series. No, and and uh, definitely Steve Bartman for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, do you think, like I said, I don't think people pay attention to that stuff, but, you know, again, as someone who's covered the smaller revenue, smaller market team, you know, this is the cases we have to build to try to, to get the recognition of those who don't have the luxury of playing for the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Cubs, the Red Sox, and so forth. Yeah, we were, they had three times the payroll we had, and quite honestly, other than inside of our room, because we, you know, we had to fight basically to the last two or three games of the season to get in as a wild card. And then once we got in, you know, the momentum, it just, it was rolling. We had so many positive things to happen in the Giants series, certainly in the Cubs series. And I mean, we were, our backs were against the wall, three games to one against the Cubs. And our guys were just a loose bunch. And I attribute a lot of that to Jack because he, he never let them panic. There was always that, uh, you know what, just stay close. Something good's going to happen. Stay close. Something good's going to happen. And he instilled that confidence in our players. And, you know, you go back now and look on paper, I think people, people undervalue just how good we were, uh, especially defensively and with that pitching staff. And in the end, that proved to be a huge factor. Maybe the biggest uh, factor um, was the way that we played defense and and how good we pitched. Oh, no, no doubt. Because you didn't have predominantly a right-handed hitting lineup. Obviously, Juan Pierre and switch hitting Luis Castillo were kind of the two lefty bats in there. But you didn't have... Any any really lefty power. Todd Hollinsworth became a bench player after originally being the left fielder. But but those right-handed hitters, Pudge Rodriguez, Mike Lowell, um, Derek Lee, 
uh, and then a 20-year-old Miguel Cabrera. And I know that Jack really kind of pushed hard to get Cabrera up to the big leagues. Yes, he did. He, uh, you know, we we needed that spark. And uh, Larry sent me in to go see Miguel. We had just moved him out to uh, left field because we had Mike Lowell, uh, an all-star and a, and a tremendous player at third base. And so I fly in. Our team is the Carolina Mudcats, and they're playing in Jackson, Tennessee. So I go in, and uh, Tracy Woodson's our skipper there, and I tell Tracy, hey, I'm just coming to get a look, see how he looks out there. You know, if he's not a butcher, we're probably going to call him up. And so as luck would have it, fly ball hit to left field off a left-hander's bat, and it's kind of curving, you know, towards the line, and Miggy runs over, makes the catch. You'd think he'd been playing out there for 20 years. So I'm on the phone to Larry, and I said, looks like a natural. Happens so easy, you know. He says, well, let's let's see, uh, you know, a couple more innings. And uh, he had maybe one routine play. And I remember he was on deck. They were in a close game. And I looked down to Tracy, and I give him the old hand across the neck, like, that's it, get him out. He's, he's going up. And uh, they had runners on second and third. And Tracy's like, oh, one more at bat, one more at bat. (laughs) No, 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 get him out. (laughs) And so uh, we tell him that night that he's going to the big leagues. And, and, uh, you know, everyone's excited. He gets to the big leagues the next day against Tampa. I think he struck out his first three or maybe first four at bats, probably first three at bats. And I'm going, oh, my God, I done recommended this kid. He's probably not ready. And what does he do? We go to extra innings. He hits a walk-off home run, and uh, a star star was born because (laughs) he little did we know at that time this guy is a slam dunk Hall of Famer. Yeah, you know, no doubt. And, And, you know, Miguel Cabrera was 20 years old then. And, of course, everyone kind of remembers that moment in the World Series when when um Roger Clemens brushed him back in Miami and then that first inning and, and threw, you know, kind of headhunted him. And then Miggy stayed on him and took him to right center for, for a home run. And I think the baseball world, if they had any doubts, they were believing that this kid was ready for, for the big moment. No doubt about it. He's, he was such a, I look back now and I see that fresh face, rosy cheeks. And, you know, the other guy, 19 years old, Dontrell Willis, comes up and goes nine and one in the first half. Uh, once we brought him to the big leagues, makes the all-star team. And uh, they just, there was so much young talent on that team. And Jack, you know what, Jack pushed them to be as good as they could be and challenged them. And they accepted it, and uh, they they thrived on it and made it work. Let's talk about that style because, you know, Jack Jack could be gruff, obviously, with him. He could get on him. I think his first meeting, he kind of tipped the table over and, and you know, just kind of, like, screamed at him that he was there to, for business. And if they wanted to be good, he, like you said, he challenged him to be good. Um, and, and then a young team responding. So here you had – the oldest manager with one of, if not the youngest team. Mm -hmm. And he literally made them them like each other. And then, you know, with Jack, talk about that relationship of how the old guy knew the buttons to push on the young players and the young players were tough enough and, and to take it 
without really giving any backlash to him. That's the key right there. The young players were tough enough to take the tough love. And Jack doled it out. He, he would not allow them to make an excuse or not believe in themselves. And in the beginning, he believed in them more than they did themselves. We knew on paper it was a good team. But we didn't realize that, you know, you got to have someone who's going to challenge them and push them and make them reach down and bring out their best abilities. And um, you know the story about when he he ended up uh, setting Pudge Rodriguez for a few games because something happened that Jack didn't think was right. And he set Pudge, didn't play him. And I think 24 other guys looked around and went, wow, if he'll bench him, he'll certainly bench me. And that was the time once he inserted Pudge back in the lineup, Pudge became the absolute leader of that ball club. And, you know, you had Conines and Lowell's and Lee and, I mean, Juan Pierre, who was the everyday spark plug, and all these guys, they showed up. And and for my money – I think we may have had the best middle infield in all of baseball. And this is my 34th year in the game. I've not seen too many guys in the middle as a duo work together like Alex Gonzalez and Louis Castillo. They they would take what you thought were going to be hits and turn them into double plays. And you just shake your head and marvel at how they did what they did. And um, it we knew it was a good team. It just was a matter of getting all the pieces, putting them together, getting the missing piece we needed when we went out and made the trade, uh, you know, and shored up the bullpen. And Jack the whole time just kept them focused, let them have fun. Uh, He even got frustrated with them a couple of times and he shut the clubhouse. And so Mike Redmond, who was the backup catcher who later became the manager, um, he made these little cards and Jack used to keep them under his leg. And one of them was a PP card and one of them was a poo poo card. And so <laughs> if they had to go to the restroom or something, they'd go see him and say, Hey Skip, can I get the PP card? And so he'd <laughs> give them the card and they created fun in what they were trying to, uh, what they were trying to do. And, and you know, didn't he, he would turn the, um, back then now, now everyone's got the, the pitcher throws 95. You see it, um, you know, on your computer and so forth. They didn't really have that then. and But at the ballpark, they could have the, you know, the, the speed of the pitch. And Brad Penny, Jack would see him turn around and see if he, if he got, you know, 95 or 96. And Jack had them, had them turn the, turn that off on Penny starts because he got too distracted trying to, you know, see how hard he was throwing because Jack would say, yeah, it throws 99, but it's to the backstop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jack was one of, one of my best Brad Penny stories that year. We're in Pittsburgh playing the pirates. One of the trainers, uh, assistant trainer comes in and says, Hey, Skip Penny's complaining his back, his leg. He had like four different ailments, you know, and Jack said, he'll be just fine. Good chance. He'll probably throw a shutout. And uh, sure enough, Jack don't baby him, lets him go. Brad Penny goes out, and I think he dealt a three-hit shutout over seven or eight innings, and uh, we ended up getting the win. And, you know, another guy, 20-whatever he was, 22-23, could have easily been the MVP of the World Series. 
and uh, was a huge part of uh, how well we did. You know, DJ, what struck me too it, with Jack's managing style, it's like there would be times the team, let's say, would win five in a row or whatever, and or six in a row, and then all of a sudden you go into the clubhouse and Jack just bowled the team out. Right. And you're like, what went on? And Jack would say, didn't like, yeah, we won the game, but didn't like the way we missed some cutoffs. So we, we, you know, we, we just happened to win a game, you know, in spite of ourselves. And then other times they'd lose three or four in a row and you'd expect, you know, Jack to be yelling at him and not a word. And he'd go, they don't need to be browbeaten. They're already down. They know what they did wrong and they're going to get through it. It's peaks and valleys. No doubt about it. He, he was such the master of never let them figure you out. And when I went down on the field to manage, one of, uh, one of the best advices that I got came from Jack. And he said, hey, kid, let me give you some advice. He said, don't see everything. Meaning, you know, don't try to keep your hands on every little thing. Let the players be players. Let them have fun. And he had, he had a gift. I mean, he had a gift from up above on how to do that, how to manage people, and uh, how to – the biggest thing Jack could do is he got players to believe in themselves. Oh, yeah. And and he also let, was a believer, let him play. He just – he said the same thing about Dusty. He goes, yeah, he, he's like me. He, he lets him play. Yes. You know, yes, obviously there's a game plan. There's, you know, directives that come from the front office in terms of data and, you know, situations. But – but that feel for the game. And and one of the big things uh, about messages we do on this channel here is we're trying to remind people because it's we're all getting way too caught up in numbers to quantify and, and validate everything. Mm-hmm. And some of the things are, no, the, these numbers are, are wrong here. And here's why. Just let this guy play. Agree. I I have a belief, and it was taught to me when I first broke into this business, those who can evaluate, those who can't measure. And I think our game is so much into that right now that, you know, everybody wants to measure everything. And sometimes, a lot of times, you lose sight inside that dugout. Those are real people. They have families at home, sick kids. Uh, they got they got something that happened with their wife at work. They have things that affect them in different ways, and a good manager understands that. He reads them. He has an open, direct line of communication, and that's what makes Dusty so effective. It's what made Jack so effective. They understood their players and realize that that's not a machine that you program numbers into. That is a real person who has a life outside of the time you see them at the ballpark. Yeah. And like you said, it when you can evaluate also, DJ, you could see, it's easy to see. We see it all the time. A guy hits 230 and you're like, well, guess what? That's a 300 hitter. Maybe this week he's hitting 230, but he's a 300 hitter. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to let that ride, you know, then I think too many times it's, you know, we're misevaluating players if we're just strictly looking at, at those numbers. No doubt. I, I will say in my time when I went down on the field to manage, 
a lot of people in front offices, there's a misnomer that, you know, some of these players are dumb. They're completely, they don't, they're out of touch. They don't understand what it's about, what's going on. The players in that clubhouse are very in tune with what the front office thinks of them. Uh, so many nuances of what, uh, what is thought of. And they know when you believe in them, when you are pulling for them, they sense it, they feel it, and they know if it's real or if it's BS. And the successful managers have that way of being, quote, a player's manager. And I, I, in my opinion, that's what made Jack so successful, and it's what makes Dusty so successful now. And, and DJ, this one thing interesting I find, and one of the reasons I'm doing these podcasts in my, quote, unquote, semi-retirement, is the story of baseball and the stories of baseball. And my foundation as a, when I broke in as a baseball beat right after covering the NFL, I covered eight Super Bowls before I did uh, baseball and, and, and I, you know, basically two to three decades already in the books of it. And, and then you're like, you got to learn this sport. And I learned so much just sitting in the dugout after the manager sessions with Jack McKeon for those three years, basically my first three years on the beat and just hearing baseball stories. And, and the one thing about baseball people is we talk baseball. When yes. I see you at the park, it's like, we're talking baseball where, Hey, you know, I saw this guy do this, or I saw that, or this is a play I hadn't seen quite this way. And we're discussing the game and it raises in an idea. And I always respected Jack for the fact that, you know, I could mention an observation. Next thing I know, he's employing it in, in the game. Like he may not have been aware of something like he no was doubt. never like, and he told me, I said, wow. I said, you know, he said, I've learned from everyone. The grounds crew guy one time years back noted something down the left field line at a ballpark. He was at that was a little quirky and Jack, you know, you couldn't see it from the dugout, but Jack was all ears to anybody because he could always learn something about baseball. Sadly, I think a lot of our, our younger writers are getting too reliant on the numbers and not really getting the baseball stories. Oh, a thousand percent. That's that's the one thing that's missing or uh, is being lost in this transition. And I think it's a shame because so much of our great game is about the characters and the people that played it and the, the managers who have so many fun stories. And uh, man, Jack, Jack was at the top of the food chain when he was there. So many great memories of that 2003 uh, season. Uh, I'll, I'll share one with you. Um, so Mike Lowell gets hit in the hand and breaks his hand. And we're almost at the point where you got to have guys on your roster to be eligible for the postseason, right? The end of uh, August. So we make a deal um, that we, Jeff Conine is the guy we want to go get. He was at the time playing for Baltimore. So they have a night game on a Sunday night, and we're up against the midnight deadline to have this deal consummated or Jeff's not going to be eligible for the postseason. And so we're on a conference call, and uh, I'm actually in Boston, and I'm walking through the commons there, and – there's about five or six of Larry's lieutenants along with Loria and McKeon on the phone. And 
Baltimore is asking for two young pitching prospects, um, you know, that we don't want to give up, but you got to do it because we're against the wall and you're not going to get Conine if you don't. And all of a sudden it got quiet. Everybody gave their opinions. You know, some people were for it, some people against it. And, and uh, you hear this booming voice in the back and it's McKeon. And he says, do you want to win the GD thing or not? You're talking <laughs> about a ball pitchers, get them out of here and bring in uh Conine. And then it got real quiet and you went, Okay, the master has spoken. That's the way we're going to go, and that's what we did. And luckily, we got it done. And uh, you know, Jeff proved to be a great, great part uh, of that drive during the uh, during the World Series. Yeah, you know, uh, excellent point because th- that team was so close, and losing Mikey Lowell at that point, which was really heading into September, I think DJ already was at thirty-two homers and one hundred five RBIs. It would have been a, you know, he wouldn't have won the MVP, but he would have been probably top five. Uh, and he missed the final month in the, of the season. Yep. Without Conine's presence, I remember we went to Atlanta shortly after that, and the the reaction from the Braves people were like, man, they're serious. Because yes. everyone thought Lowell going down was going to be the end of it. Yep. But then you bring in, you know, a Conine, and that just kind of, sold, you know, solidified the deal. And, um, yeah, you know, that again, it's – it's a feel and a, an acknowledgement of you're you're there. We had uh, Freddie Gonzalez on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, DJ, and he spoke about Dave Dombrowski having a, the real instincts of knowing when to go for it. Mm-hmm. And and you know David's done a, and I think he's a Hall of Famer too. No, uh, no. You know when to make those moves to that get you you know to where you want to go. And I mean, he's back in it again. So and he's back in it with his fourth different his, team. his track record, four teams to the, to the world series. And he's, uh, and the part that I hear that everybody really loves and respects about Dombrowski is how well he utilizes his people and listens to them and utilizes the personnel. And you know, he's, he's a bright guy, very intelligent. And, uh, uh, that's why he's had the success he's had. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, he's he's uh, an old baseball guy, you know, yeah. Dave's been at all the levels and developing and being an architect of of winning teams, which Jack was. You know, we haven't touched on the Trader Jack aspect of it. But, you know, I know talking to Casey uh, McKeon, Jack's son, who's a teammate of yours in the Nationals, and he talked about that Jack really kind of popularized the, the winter meetings even uh by you know being you know jack would joke he put a table right there in the lobby and have a little sign open for business and literally would conduct trades right there in front of uh the world or anyone that walked through the the lobby at that time just legendary you know what he he was never afraid to make a deal and probably because of his own comfort level and his ability to evaluate you know he knew what he wanted and he would go get it and try to make the other guy think he was, you know, man, I'm giving up a lot here in this deal. But Jack went and got exactly what he wanted because he understood how to put the puzzle together. You know, and, and that's an interesting thing because, you know, you have that knack too as a, as a great evaluator yourself. But Jack, he used to tell me, let's say he was wanting to make a trade. Uh, this is obviously not today using analysts and analytics and, and, you know, various scouts and, and the cross checkers, he'd have like his two, let's say his two top evaluators. They would go see player X. Well, scout goes and he goes, scout A goes and he goes, I like him. 
Scout B goes and says, I'm not so sold on. Then Jack said he would go and look, and he basically said he would make the call. He'd respect both both opinions, but Jack's words, it was like his butt was on the line if it didn't work. Yep. So he went out and made the call. No doubt about it. He's, you know, I've never heard Jack just run somebody down. He'll go, well, you know what, that's uh, that's interesting. That's his opinion. I don't see the player that way. And he knows how difficult it is when you go out and you make an evaluative uh, decision and you you want to be right. Your credibility's on the line. Um, but you also can't be afraid to be wrong. And I think that that's where evaluators separate themselves. Um, they're, they're not afraid to be right. Yeah, yeah. And obviously – you know, you you went back and you said when he got when he got hired in, at seventy two, and he said age is just a number. I, I love one of his quotes when he said, uh, "I don't see why we should be penalized for being experienced." You know, the thing about uh, that now in our game, unfortunately, it appears that uh, there was a time when experience was revered, and now it's almost as if you know what you're you're a dinosaur, you're an antique, and Man, there's guys like Jack McKeon and the knowledge that he has and the things that he can um, he can draw on to help an organization, a general manager, a farm director, a, a manager in a ball. I used to love to go with him to Greensboro and sit there and the you know we'd have a young a ball manager and they would ask Jack all these questions about stuff during the game. Hey, would you have done this? Should I have done that? And he would take the time because he loved talking the game to use that as a teachable moment. Yeah. Yeah. Made him unique in that regard. And he's still out there. That's the amazing thing. Still you know, going he- strong. It's ama- It absolutely is amazing. I will share a funny story with you right before uh, COVID hit. So, you know, Jack's a devout Catholic. I'm a devout yeah. Catholic. And we always attend mass together uh, in spring training religiously. And so this one particular Sunday in Palm Beach, uh, we go to mass and we are uh, we're sitting there and it's during the Eucharist. And all of a sudden, Jack's telephone rings and goes off. And I never I tell you what, he looked like Alex Gonzalez, Louis Castillo double play the way he reached in there and got this phone and turned the ringer off. So we get outside and in in typical Jack fashion, he goes, thought that was a call from God. It was my time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to share, I'm going to share a funny one. 2003, you guys win it all. um, And then you guys were rock stars. It was, it was a great time. And then there's the, the winter meetings were in uh, New Orleans that year. And so we're at, in New Orleans and Jack, you know, he'd be upstairs with you guys in meeting and whatever trades you're planning on doing. But, you know, Joe Capozio, who, of course, covered it for the Palm Beach Post, we would wait in the lobby and we wait for Jack to come down. And Jack, because Jack would do his uh, cigar smoke breaks. So we'd wait. We know Jack will need to come down. So we'd just BS with Jack. We'd He'd see us. He'd wave us outside. We'd, we'd be outside in the street. Jack would smoke his cigar. And here we are in in New Orleans. He just beats the Yankees, but it, you know, obviously New Orleans is in a Major League Baseball town. And this is one of my favorite Jack stories. He's there, and these people on the street are recognizing him. And um, they're like, uh, 
um, hey, uh, that's Jack McKeon. Jack would shake their hands because, you know, Jack would, you know, pat in the back and all that other good stuff. And then Jack goes, uh, after a while, it, people keep doing, he goes, all these people are meeting, he goes, I'm starting to feel like Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> well, two seconds later, I kid you not, a car pulls up in front of the hotel, outsteps Tommy Lasorda. I love it. And Jack sees him and goes, Tommy, I was just talking about you. <laughs> yeah, I was, yes. It's just like his, uh, it was just a, a very fun moment to, to hear. And that was just vintage Jack. And I was thinking, um, this uh, 2023 or uh, 2003, excuse me. I hope that New Year's doesn't come because this season and this year has been remarkable for him. No doubt and, um, about it. On that, we're going to kind of wrap this show up. And um, and DJ Dan Jennings, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, all the best of luck to the to you and the Nationals, and uh, and thanks for sharing your insights. And um, as we get out of here, you can follow us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, True Social, uh, Brighton, uh, Parlor, uh, GetVi, um, Pure Social. Um, I don't think I'm leaving any out. Dave gave me all those. Um, again, this is uh, Joe Frasero, Man on Second, and um, we are getting out of here right now. Have a great day, everyone.